Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ian and Peter Haig. And we're going to start the program today with, um, I call this a, a new friend, um, a superb chef who runs the kitchen at Floor 2, which is the restaurant in the Fairmount Hotel in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and, he's, Julio, got, and he's got a fascinating life story. He does. Julio Parata, uh, we loved him. Here's him talking. <laughs> Okay. Hello, hello, hello. We started already. That's okay. We started already. Keep going. Well, it's been a while. I've been trying to get a hold of this chef, Julio Parata, to interview him because he's had such an interesting background, a lot of experience, a lot to share with us. Um, he is the, the chef of floor two, which is spelled funny, FL period two, in in the um, um, Fairmont Hotel in Pittsburgh. Um, but it's, you've taken a long circuitous route to get here, starting with birth in El Salvador. Um, Julio, give us the elevator version of all the places you've been and how you got into cooking. Started at a really young age um, with my mom being in the industry. Uh, to me, it was something that I just felt that it was like a second home. Um, like I was explaining to you earlier, it was important for me to do something that I was passionate about, things that I remember seeing. Uh, one of them being coming or getting out of school and then making an excuse to go to my mom's restaurant just to see... It, you know, see the chaos. Something that ever since I was a little kid, it's just intrigued me. And uh, I would always get in trouble, to be honest with you. My mom was like, what are you doing here? Go home. And now I'm a father. I would understand why she would tell me this. At that time, I would just uh, would go back to my grandma's house, really sad. Um, but, you know, uh, when I was uh, eight, nine years old, we, I, you know, we made the move to come to the United States. Um, during that time, there was a civil war uh, happening. And... Uh, we were blessed to get an opportunity to come here and uh, grew up in Orange County, California. Um, you know, I was very passionate always about cooking. Uh, my mom, my dad worked long hours, you know, living the American dream. And I had to literally cook for myself and my sister. And I was like the only one, even though my sister is older, I was the one getting up every morning. Like, what do you want for breakfast? I'll cook, you know, I'll cook this, I'll cook that. And, and when my dad and my mom would also cook in the weekends i was always in the kitchen helping out so you know i ended up uh going to a small school in montana uh, to play football and i decided to just tell my mom like i said hey, i'm gonna this is not what i want to do you know at that time it was uh you know i had to mature i had to make a decision for my own it's either get a liberal arts degree or and then go back to school again um i chose to literally changed path and that's when i started doing research um my intentions were to actually own a restaurant that was my dream you know like i was telling you earlier uh during that time being a chef it's you know you idolize all these uh european chefs that had made their name with michelin star and you know so i went to culinary school in san francisco cca um really i went there to learn about the business 
within the first two days, it was a literally a culture shock for me because it was almost like a military style type of school. Um, everything had to be pressed neatly. Everything had to be precise, and you know it, the discipline that I learned from you know from CCA was just amazing. Um, I had the opportunity to stage, uh, which is you go in there after school and you work for free for a couple hours and. You don't get the coolest job to do. You don't get to work on the line. You just, you know, I remember uh, de-seating a whole case of conquats <laughs> at Gary Danko and, you know, and, um, you know, grating horseradish in the middle of summer in the basement of his restaurant, and which is, like, super hot, super humid, and fresh horseradish is not something fun to be around. So when your pores open, it's just like your whole body's burning, you know. So um, I was blessed. Uh, to work there um, and worked in other places in San Francisco while I was going to school. I think that truly kind of uh, gave me the idea what type of food, the purpose of me being in the kitchen. Um, I was very intrigued with the discipline of, uh, you know, the, what San Francisco and the restaurants had to offer, uh, all the way from, like, the way you fold your towels, you know, the way you set your stations, and I've just always been very lucky, and I, I feel more so blessed to, you know, always be with cooking with the right people or cooking for with the right people that got me where I am now. Uh, but definitely, uh, you know, one thing that I would say is the hard work that this chefs uh, put in. And when you look at, look up to somebody. That's in, you know, you, you can't just tell somebody to work in the kitchen 14, 16 hours. That's, that has to be in your blood. You have to dream. You have to live it. You have to, you know, breathe it. Um, and so you start building this discipline in your body and your mindset. Um, and that's kind of like the mindset that I always had, you know, because I saw my mentors, you know, um, working so hard and achieving goals and, and you know, the vision that they had and, so I always told myself, I'm like, you know what, I'm like, this is this this is the way it is. This is you know. So you learn to accept that there's hours to put in. Um, you know, after I left San Francisco, like I mentioned to you, I went back home to uh, Orange County, California, worked at the St. Regis Hotel, um, and it was really important for me to to continue that path. Uh, end up living in a lot of different cities that, you know. Like you asked me, how do you like Pittsburgh? Uh, every single city has uh, something very special in my heart. Uh, but I think this city has planted a seed in my heart and my family that um, it means a lot. I can go back to Vegas and I can feel like at home. I've been here close to two years now. Um, I feel that I'm almost like when I came from you know to the United States. It's like wide open. Now, you, you, you came to Pittsburgh, and then a number of exciting things have happened for you while you've been here. You were sort of like Johnny on the spot, because, because people had a, had a way of going somewhere else, and you were left standing. <laughs> that must have felt pretty good. Well, you know, it's, um, so I got you know, a phone call uh, from you know, a friend of mine, and uh, who actually works within the company. And, uh, you know, he he talked to me about the restaurant. Um, I came here and did a tasting. Um, and this is, you know, after the other chef have um, left. Um, went back home and I told my wife, you know, it's, it's a beautiful city. Um, however, 
we're from I'm from the West Coast. She's from Texas. My wife first thing tells me, well, you don't know how the winters are over there. So it was a lot of discussions, you know, that happened. And, uh, you know, they offered me the job. Um, realistically, it's um, in the chef world, it's 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 kind of common in a sense, you know. Um, opening a restaurant is not one of those easiest things to do, you know. Uh, I took over the kitchen, and it was a lot of exciting things happening. Obviously, it was a brand-new restaurant. Um you know, brand new everything uh, from staff, cooks, and you know, it's uh, it was a great opportunity. I, you know, I told my wife, I'm like, all right, well, I worked in Dallas where I opened Madrina, and you know, at that time, Uchi, I don't know if you guys familiar with Uchi restaurant, they just opened, so Madrina restaurant and Uchi were like the like the hottest thing. We ended up luckily enough to be the best uh, best new restaurant. And it took a lot of hard work. So coming into this, I already had opened three restaurants. So your mindset changes. You know, you don't really, you disregard, like, what's kind of happened in the past, you know, in the history. You just, all you got to focus is, like, what's now and what your final goal is uh, eventually, you know. And like I said, opening a restaurant, running a restaurant, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline from coaching, from, you know, you're going to, there's going to be a lot of sweats and tears in, involved into it. But, you know, we're here now in the restaurant. that's uh, successfully doing really well, and I'm, you know, excited about it. We interview a lot of chefs, and this is all over the country. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't go so far as to say all over the world, but I think that's where we're coming to, especially with the, the Brexit stuff in England. Um, there is an incredible shortage because being a chef has become a hotter occupation, and there's a shortage of cooks, staff, servers, anything like that. Um, how are you managing with this general overall shortage of uh, staffing in a restaurant personnel? Well, the most important thing for me, it's, um, you know, coming in here, uh, it was for opening and the, the covers that we're doing, obviously we're a little bit short, but I, I found out quickly that um, this is happening here in the city, this, you know, this is something that I ran into when I was in Amelia Islands as well, and something that I ran into when I was in Dallas. Um, I think that there's a lot of amazing restaurants here in the city, um, unfortunately, I think the mentality of uh, the generation, and, and, you know, it's not their fault, I wouldn't say that, but I think it's, uh, if you go to school within either graduate or a year into it, they'll want to be sous chefs or chefs. Or on television. Or on television. Um, that's, you know, I hate to say it, uh, there's a lot of false um, promises that uh, the, the generation, I think, it's got itself into that when they come in, they don't realize that it's not what they think of when they work in the kitchen because what they see on TV or they see in magazines, it's not. It involves a lot of intense hard work, a lot of discipline, and it's, to me, it's, you know, my dad works construction. I would say that I would I would match the same the same level just in a different you know physical way. Um, so I think that a lot of um, the cooks here in the city probably either go to New York, go to LA to work at the what's the next hot restaurant. 
but you know the people that are staying here you have a lot of amazing chefs you have justin severino doing amazing things from you know from here you got sam from vivo's kitchen you got rogers from umami these are these are chefs that um has been around not just here in pittsburgh but been around in other states and cities and i think pittsburgh's going to turn around i think pittsburgh it's uh, good things are happening here i think the intentions in the city it's um adapting to to changes um you know my from my understanding is like kind of when i lived in texas like big portions and you know um you know from the from from the guest side which is completely normal i want to make sure even including myself i want to make sure that when i pay i get my money is worth um you know but what we do different now i think that you know at least that i know all the chefs here in the city are using top quality ingredients um i know that a lot of the chefs you know like the names that i said very respectfully are using and sourcing local ingredients now I'm going to tell you one thing that's important, um, you know, for the audience to understand. Buying local ingredients, it's expensive. Buying ingredients from U.S. Foods or uh, Cisco, they buy mass quantities so they can actually push out the farmers fairly easily with price points. And, unfortunately, we're in the business that restaurants close every day. So you have to not only juggle the the food side, but you also have to make dishes that make money, but also that's going to satisfy the guests that they leave, you know, they walk out the door and say that was worth it, and now I'm going to come back. Now I talked to you briefly before this about, um, well, I mean, your your general cooking style is listed as American, and I'm assuming it's New American, and I'm assuming. Part of, of what your mission is to get fresh, high quality, and as local as possible ingredients. Um, but we talked briefly, and I said that there, we went through this era of the superstar celebrity chefs, and I think we're past that now. And I think we're now into this thing with issues. I mean, this whole thing with um, all the um, drug and alcohol abuse, all of the suicides. I mean, there are issues involved. Uh, there are different missions involved, hunger relief. What are your issues that you aim for the most besides just doing quality food? I, I think that's a, um, that's a very a topic that um, a lot of the chefs and, you know, in, in our, in our world tend to ignore, but it's something so real. Um, I've experienced in my career, um, you know, seeing some amazing chefs, talented chefs, uh, just get devastated by alcoholism or drugs or drug abuse. Um, it's, you know, you come in every day and you have a huge prep list, right? Um, you execute a stressful service. Um, the last thing that you, you know, you want to think it's, or the first thing you want to think actually is just like, Cold beer sounds so good, you know. Uh, what I tried to do is, um, you know, and I, and I started doing this in Florida. I, I tried to build a relationship, like I told you. It's important for me for my cooks to feel at home. It's important for me, you know, I have a J-1 program where I have students from India and the Philippines, for example. And they're here for a whole year with me. Great. And the intentions are for me to get their skills level 
what they will do somewhere else, anywhere in the world, India or wherever, four years that they will invest their life and career, my intentions are to cut that to one year and showing them everything that I've done, all the sacrifices and mistakes I've done. Um, so I try to truly make, uh, you know, and in, in, in also it, I learned a lot in the corporate side of, um, you know, we have an amazing HR department. We have standards. We have rules. We have protocols. We have, you know, there's so many things that we have here. And me personally, I'll tell you that I come from self-standing alone restaurants. You don't have that culture. Being here is important for us. You know, we constantly have meetings, how we can make the employees happier at a workplace. Um, and, and these meetings are important because our employees, we try in, in to, you know, hear their voice. That's important. Uh, you have no voice a lot when you work in those self-stand restaurants. A lot of the chefs, and, and again, I'm going to be very careful when I say this because I don't want to offend any other chefs, but it's um, very one one way or my highway or the highway, right? Uh, here, you know, uh, we have an HR department. So the mentality is different, you know. Um, and I always tell my cooks, hey, listen, I want to tell you one thing. I want to make sure that you don't la if someone presents me a plate I don't want nobody to be saying oh my god look at look at that dish no I respect someone that puts something in front of me than someone that's going to talk negative about so I eliminated that right away and and that's very important for me and a lot of people don't understand bullying it always happens okay and it happens since you're a little kid it happens when you're an adult. So you don't know people's feelings. You don't know what they've gone through. This industry is very stressful. So like I mentioned before, when, when it's time to go, we're all business. When, it's, when, when the rush passes by, it's I want to make sure we're high-fiving, great service. Or if you don't have a great service, I'm going to give you a hug and say, like, hey, this is what you did wrong. This is what you need to do next time. You need to go home and think about to anticipate before you put yourself in that position that your station is going down, the kitchen term. Um, call for help. We're one team, one dream. You know, um, So it's important for me that my cooks come happy and they leave happy, right? Because I don't want them to think like what I experienced and lived and seen. It was so rough. A beers or a cigarette sounds amazing. How about, man, that was awesome. That was cool. I want my kids to go home because they're all roommates to talk about the service. <laughs> you know, instead of um, swallowing your own depression and your own anxiety, your own uh, way to relax. I don't smoke, so I can't speak for smoking, but I always hear it. I don't know. I need a cigarette. <laughs> I'm like, cigarette for what? It's like, hey, it was just a rough story. It's like, no, man, it's, it, it's, it's time to just kind of think. It's like, what can I do better? You know, and, and so it, it's planting that seed and, and teaching these kids and, the, you know, the generation of, like, there's other outlets and ways um, to stimulate your mind. You know, don't, don't beat yourself up. We all make mistakes. Mistakes bound to happen in this industry um, every night. Every night is different. You might be cooking the same dish, right? But modifications come in you have to adjust to it so it's always preparing yourself to you know take 
one step at a time. And uh, but yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's a real thing that's happened in our in our in, in our industry. But I think it's uh, most important is to educate the next generation how to control this. Well, you sound like a good boss. I mean, somebody I'd like to work for. You also seem to be a very compassionate person. And I sense a great deal of creativity in you. Um, we've been skirting around this thing. What What's on your menu that we should look out for tonight? Um, if, you're, if you're into beef tartare, um, I think that's one of my favorite dishes. <laughs> um, you know, it's very simple. It's very traditional. It's um, it's very straightforward. Um, you know, things that you know. You know, I want to touch something that's really important. Um, you, you know, I kind of went off a little bit the subject, but the modern American. You know, a lot of people would say, "What is modern American?" and and it has a lot of different translations. And that's the type of food that I'm cooking currently right now. Uh, modern American to me is. Uh, I'll give you a good example. If you go to Italy, right? Um, and you go and eat Italian food, it's probably, well, it's not probably, it's amazing, correct? But when you come here to the United States, it's not like what I had in Italy. Well, here's the thing. It's, we don't have the ingredients that they have in Italy, one. Um, number two, they've been doing that for centuries, right? Um, one thing that I try to do here that is important is that we're going to use the best ingredients. We're not going to reinvent the wheel, but we are going to put a modern spin to it, right? That's uh, that's that's to me in my heart what modern American is. It's uh, not doing foams. It's uh, not doing you know like stuff that you see or, or or that you would see like you know five ten years ago. I want to give you something that you're going to see what it is on the plate. I'm not trying to stimulate your mind to kind of figure it out what you're going to eat. I think that's important. You know, that, that's what separates a, a chef as well. My intention is to cook in this for you to understand that what you're having, it's top quality ingredients because that's what, you know, the company or Fairmont and 4-2 stand for. Uh, number two is what you're eating in a plate. It took a lot of hard work because it comes from farmer's hands. Yes. I know where the product's coming from. And number, you know, number three is... If I'm going to give you pierogies, for example, and it was part of my tasting when I came here, I made pierogies from scratch. It wasn't like, you know, grandma's, you know, pierogies, but they were awesome. I blanched them in water, and then I sear them with a little bit of uh, butter just to get them golden brown and get the nutty flavor to it. Finished with creme fraiche and caviar, right? Great. So... So that's, that's better than any pierogi I ever had. <laughs> so you, you, your personal little twist on everything is to elevate it. Correct. So that's uh, that. That's the modern. Like right now, um, highly suggest the tartare. Highly suggest the crispy mushrooms. Oh, I um, So it took about three months to come up with this recipe it's it, it, and and when i say three months it's because there's a lot of development goes into it when you make a recipe at least for me um i've always been a firm believer that i'm not going to read a book it's, this is when i was young when i was a line cook there was no point for me to buy a book right because most of those recipes when you make it it's not going to be the same way in the restaurant I, I quickly found out that you don't give like your full 
recipe, right? You leave like one or two ingredients out of the key players to make that dish. So I told myself, I'm like, why would I even do that? Why don't I just go work for, for those chefs that have a mission? Why don't I go work for the chefs that have cookbooks, right? So that's what I've done in my career. One thing that I noticed is is that the, the, the food that I'm doing is the food that I used to do back in the days, it was for one dish might have like 16 to 25 ingredients and steps. Um, but I thrive on that because I was challenged to make that recipe because it was so delicious. The way I think now, it's um, in the way I cook, it's simplicity. If I can give you a a mushroom dish that it's simply made, and you can recognize the ingredients and taste the ingredients, that's a win-win situation for me and for the restaurant and for my team, right? To sum up here, I mean, is there like one thing that you really want to do that you haven't done in terms of either the this restaurant and menu or your career? I know it's asking you a really hard question, but can you think for a minute and give me an answer? Absolutely. Um, you're going to see a little bit of Latin flavor um, into this menu tonight. Um I cooked a lot of French restaurants. I cooked with a lot of amazing chefs that they do their food. Um, working for this company in the Fairmont, it has me allowed to, to be me, to be able to cook what I love. And what I love is, you know, simple food, a little bit of Latin with European techniques um, and European dishes with Latin techniques, right? Um, I am from Central America, so... I try to not put so much Latin, but not so much French food and not so much Italian food. There's a balance. There's a balance that I draw the line that it's, uh, I'm going to cook what I think the, you know, the, the, the community wants to eat. Um, when I took over this restaurant, it was a hotel restaurant. Uh, you know, it was Habitat. Very upscale, very fine dining. Um, I call it tweezer foods, right? Um, I don't cook tweezer foods. I used to. Um, I think it's important, again, just to focus on what you're giving the guests. My main goal and the main goal that um, my bosses, you know, um, believed, believed in is we have to somehow figure out a way to get the community of Pittsburgh to come to Fort 2. And to me, that was one of the most important things that stuck to my mind. Price point has to be right. Um, it's a blue-collar town, respect Rousseau, a lot of hard-working people. I respect that. But I also want to be able to have my neighbors, for example, or someone that I met, not think of us as it's too expensive because it's a hotel, right? Um, so I think that the prices here are competitive, but, again, we have to kind of figure it out a way, myself, for example, what people like. There's not a lot of land restaurants here. There's not a lot of uh, Mexican restaurants and not a lot of Peruvian restaurants. So guess what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to cook modern American, but I'm going to bring those ingredients that Pittsburgh's never had. Good. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. I mean, of course, Latin cuisine now is so hot. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you look at, they have a whole 
50 best Latin American restaurants now, and boy, I've eaten some of them, and I love Peruvian food. There's not a Peruvian restaurant in town, is there? I, I believe there's a few of them. Uh, there's a few of them. Um, if you like Peruvian restaurant, you're going to try my Peruvian ceviche tonight then. <laughs> it's uh, it's very Peruvian. So I worked at a uh, restaurant in San Francisco. It's, um, it's called Fresca. Uh, young chef. Uh, during the time, he gave me an opportunity to work in his kitchen. And the first station that I actually um, worked was uh, ceviche. Um, Peruvian, that a lot of people don't know, is have a lot of uh, Japanese and Asian influence. Oh, yeah. So to me, that was pretty intrigued to learn about it because I have no idea when it came, you know, when it came down to Peruvian cuisine. The way they even cook the shrimp, it's, it, you know, when you think of ceviche, of uh, shrimp ceviche, for example, immediately think the way Mexican cuisine does it. It's literally they cook the shrimp in lime juice overnight or 24 hours until the shrimp is completely cooked. Fish, same way. They cook it completely. You go to Peru, right, you're going to get literally lightly cooked fish with some sort of um, vinegar or lime or lemon juice. However, it's not fully cooked, right? So I think that comes from the Asian culture. So I try to do the same thing. Again, uh, it's, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just understanding the execution of the dishes and what I deal with. Uh, number two... The shrimp that they get in Peru is wild caught. It's not farm raised. So I, I have to literally source everything out of this wild caught, number one, um, that hasn't been frozen or, or any stores. And we cook the shrimp here for literally three and a half hours because it kills the bacteria. It's not a shrimp that's uh, farm raised with thousands of fish. This is wild caught. Um, you know, so there's um, there's things to understand about cuisines now how does that modern very simple it has the uh, leche de tigre which is tiger's milk okay <laughs> the way I make it here is a little bit in a modern way um, and then you know we finish it lightly with a little bit of uh, cilantro oil so those are the dishes uh, that I think you know highlight as a starters as well um, and it's very straightforward menu. Um, I think that if you don't ever had or know what the dishes are, I think they you can feel comfortable that you know one thing that I don't want is to feel people uncomfortable and asking questions with the menu. What is this? What is that? I never had this. I can't even pronounce this word. So I tried to make it the menu very approachable. Um, so it makes it fun. Well, I can't wait to try it, and I'm going to try your uh, Leche de Tigre and the ceviche. And, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us, Julio. I loved meeting you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoy the dinner tonight. I'm very excited. Isn't it just terrific to, to have a good, a good deal story like Julio's? Oh, yeah. It's great. He's wonderful. So warm, so welcoming. And, uh, boy, uh, I haven't had ceviche like that since I was in Lima, Peru. And the best thing about him, I think, is the way that he, he cares about his people. Yeah, with all of them, right? And all they all, care all about of him. them. And yeah, exa yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's a happy place to dine, aside from the fact that the food is magnificent anyway.
Yeah, and the decor is drop dead gorgeous, you know. Any, anyway, don't don't go away because we'll take a, take a short break and then we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next up, you talk about how you'd feel good if if your family and your kids uh, decided that your website and the title for your book and your blog should be No Crumbs Left because that's what happens when you eat Terry Turner's food. She cooks for you, and it's all healthy. Uh, she's a member of really important communities such as the Whole30 and, um, well, Listen to Terry talk to us about yeah, he, what he, she cooks. Here's, here's how you can do the same as she does. We're going to be interviewing Terry Turner, a cook, about her new book, No Crumbs Left. But what I really have done, I've made a new friend. <laughs> Welcome, Terry. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, um, the title itself is wonderful, um, No Crumbs Left, and, and that's subtitled Recipes for Everyday Food Made Marvelous. Now, this is also um, a, a, the title of a, a blog, is it, to start with? That's exactly right. It's the, it's the name of my blog, my Instagram, and my Facebook. Okay. And uh, if I read it, correctly uh somebody in your family came up with that my daughter actually did uh-huh yes we were looking for a name and she came up with that and of course the idea is no crumbs left because we ate it all because it was so delicious right now uh, the introduction to your book um uh, is uh, let me check this name again uh who started the um whole 30 Melissa. Melissa Hartwig, the Whole30. Melissa Hartwig Urban. And and she was the founder of Whole30, her co-founder. And I've I've listened and heard people talking about this, but I really do not pinpoint exactly what the Whole30 program is. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to say, don't let that stop people from getting the book, because even though uh, when you do Whole30, you're not having grains and legumes, sugar, dairy, alcohol, or dessert. My book is really about how to prepare these things, uh, and I think, I don't know if I said, but gluten-free. But have it still be, you know, spectacular, delicious, and really like celebration food. So if you ate my food, you just, you would never even know that that it's Whole30. But Whole30 is a 30-day reset just to help you kind of figure out what foods you may be reacting to, and you can introduce them back in. And it's just a way to reset your body and restart things and a way to get you feeling and living your best life. Yeah, well, somebody at, at the hair salon I go to actually has been on and off of that. And she's like a fraction of the, the weight she was at when I first met her. So it also enables you to lose weight, huh? It really does. And a lot of people go on to do it. It's similar to paleo, but different. And a lot of people go on 
you know, and they realize, oh, gosh, eating gluten I'm intolerant to, or I'd prefer to eat a more paleo lifestyle. And a lot of people incorporate that in or, you know, do something like, you know, 80% of the time or something like that. Well, now, I don't know much about paleo. I think about the only time I heard the word was that was two funny guys in a butcher shop. And, and one, one of them is ordering up all this meat, and his friend says to him, but I thought you were vegan. And he said, no, I'm paleo now. So so is paleo like like the Atkins diet or something like yeah, that? Yeah, kind of. It, it kind of is, yes. The premises are similar. Low carbs, carbs, high protein, um, and yeah. you don't have to worry about fat, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You don't worry about it, fat or no, you don't, don't no, consume it? No, you don't, it? actually. And that's why cardiologists aren't so crazy about Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's a, it's a, and, but some happen, actually happen to really like it because of what they find that happens for people. But remember, it's small bits of protein and small bits of fat. Plenty of vegetables, you know, wonderful big salad, lovely olive oil, you know, all kinds of wonderful things. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your cookbook though, because you're interested in in real food and real flavor. And, and you're an everyday cook. You said that your mother really didn't star in the kitchen. And uh, you picked up on thinking if you were going to do it, you might as well enjoy it and get the most out of it. A hundred percent. I saw her struggle with daily cooking. And I thought if you're going to live the rest of your life eating, you might as well absolutely embrace it. And I'm lucky to have started that journey when, when I was about 18. Because as you and I know, foodies are the best people. <laughs> and you, 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 you have so many things that I agree with. I said to you that we're immediate friends because you're the only one I know who who eats leftovers and salad for breakfast, which I do. <laughs> it's the greatest thing. And if you add my marinated onions and some of my pistachio pesto, which is one of the magic elixirs in the book, yeah. uh, it, it just even takes it up a notch better. But that's my favorite breakfast for sure. Now, you mentioned your magic elixirs, and that's kind of key to the appeal of of your cooking. Why don't you tell us more about that? Both of those magic little items that turn food from ordinary to extraordinary. So whether it's my tomato confit that you can whip out to make an an amazing pasta, it's my gomacio, which is a wonderful sesame salt that's homemade that you're sprinkling over everything. I never heard of that. Is that something that I should have known about? Oh, my gosh, you should have. It's so wonderful. It's a flavored salt made with uh, sesame seeds. And it's like, you know, it's a wonderful garnish condiment to have around. And you're going to want it with your leftovers in the morning for sure. But, um, you know, my preserved lemons and my 999 Island dressing and smoky pepitas, not to mention chicken stock. Homemade chicken stock is the mother of of all uh, magic elixirs for sure. Yeah, I, I didn't. Does that come from somewhere? Well, it, it, it certainly it comes from the chicken, absolutely. But um, I add chicken stock, you know, my homemade chicken stock. I mean, just about everything I make. And I'm imagining, as a cook, that you love homemade chicken stock also. Yeah, but the, this gamasio, I never heard of it. Oh, gamasio. Well, it's 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 Asian for sure, and. Uh, yeah, once you make it, you're going to be making it all the time. It, nobody, I mean, we get sent every conceivable kind of salt. I mean, I have so much salt. I mean, I'm sort of like, as, as this Portuguese chef told me after a salt tasting, I feel like a bacalao. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. here what you're going to do is take some of those wonderful salts that you have, 
and you're going to add um, these toasted sesame seeds, and you're going to come up with uh, something that's just, just quite that's really quite lovely. So thank gosh you have all the salt. Now we have something to do with it. Okay. Now um, I'm I'm also a fan, by the way, of pistachio pesto. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, and pistachios are wonderful. Have you ever tried them in guacamole? I haven't, but it sounds divine. It, it's de- yeah, you do a regular guac, except that you use um, the pistachio nuts and pistachio oil. And you do that with the avocado oil. Yeah, clearly. I mean, the rest of it's basic avocado, onion, the whole thing, chili, the and whole you just, thing. And, but you, you just blend it. Instead of any other oil, you use the pistachio oil, and you add the pistachio nuts. You know, slightly toasted, like you always would. You know, yeah, we, cool. we, we, I've we, never, never even had pistachio oil, so I'm so excited. That's a new magic elixir for me right now. Okay, we, you we, can we stole buy the, it from La Tourangel. We stole the re- we stole the recipe from a Spanish restaurant in New York. New York the, City. The avocado. The avocado. And, uh, and she's talking pistachio. about the, um, the, about the, uh, uh, pistachio oil. Oh, sure, sure. That's yeah. La Tourangel. L-A-T-O-U-R-A-N-G-E-L-L-E. They're out of, um, I mean, the, the people are French, but they're out of, and the technique is French, but they're out of California. They have the okay, most marvelous right. oils you've ever had, nut oils and stuff. So. Oh, I love marvelous oils. It's kind of like my hobby. Well, oh, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, they have um, what is it? Uh, toast, toasted walnut oil, which is also great. Oh yeah, I adore that. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um. So, anyhow, um, basically, you want to have a well-stocked pan so yeah. that you can you can zip up, zing up, all these things, all the ordinary yeah. meals. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, now you have tips all over the place, tips, including yeah. you have 48 tips that uh, you list, and then you give additional tips throughout the book. Yes, I, I'm all, I used to have a show called Tips with Terry over at the Feed Feed, um, but on my Instagram, I have stories daily about what to make next for dinner, and what we realized is just quite naturally, I, I'm giving a lot of tips, because it's great to follow a recipe, but it's really about learning to cook. And so, you know, they're just cooks of, uh, uh, tips of a home cook who loves, loves to, uh, you know, loves to cook. And so I, I assembled my 48 favorite, 48 being my lucky number. And people, uh, people love them. And then throughout the book, it's not just, it's not just recipes. It's more about, uh, how to, uh, a life well lived. And so these tips just kind of, they just help with everything from living the best life to, uh, finishing the recipe. How about, how about a couple of examples, Terry? Well, for example, um, mason jars are a spectacular, you know, as a storage system. Um, you know, instead of putting things in plastic, you know, using mason jars and also freezing. If you get tempered glass and you don't overfill it, you can freeze in it. And it's just actually probably so much better for our body than, than, than putting things um, in plastic. Um, you know, the other thing is, is that food doesn't come from the refrigerator, right? It comes from... It has an origin, so it's like get out and meet your local baker and your fishmonger and your farmer and, you know, talk to them. They have so much to teach us, so just get on out there. And another favorite one is, you know, Old Bay seasoning is a revelation. It's wonderful. You guys probably have used it for years. I have. There's a whole generation that doesn't know about it, but it is 
uh, it changes the dish and adds a bit of magic. Basically, to profile briefly the whole book, you're really interested in home-cooked, real, home-made, and wholesome food. Absolutely. Um, what about your four-ingredient chicken recipe? Yes, I mean, it's, it's spectacular. So um, one of the things about the book is it's great because if you are a home cook, you're going to look at this, you're going you're to like it, but you're not going to be limited by it. The four-ingredient, I mean, chicken's so great. It's, you know, it, here's the trick, bone on, skin on, absolute, going to be the best. Put it in the oven, 375, olive oil, salt, and pepper, and really get that nice and crispy the last five minutes. Baste it with the chicken fat, um, and it's my everyday roast chicken breast. And you're going to, you know, make it for chicken salad. You're going to use it in soup, uh, so many different ways. But it's absolutely delicious. And you get home from work, uh, you know, it's it's on the table in 35 minutes, and it's spectacular. And then if you take my pistachio pesto and slather it over it, then you're going to have a really really good day. Now, do you must think about food all the time? I, I yeah, absolutely. I mean, what was Nora Ephron was like when she's not eating, she's thinking about what she's going to make next. But and I surround myself with people who love to cook also. So yes, we're we're always thinking about you know food and recipe testing and trying things, and uh, I think it's a way to a joyful life. And really, I don't know where these ideas came from. Like cocoa salmon, delicious, right? Well, it's like just kind of fooling around in the kitchen and and trying different things, but it's doesn't happen to be whole 30 it's really lovely but you would when you put uh can't when you put the cocoa in the mix there's a bit of sugar and some other things and you put this marinade it, it just it's so lovely and you grill it up or pan fry it and it gets this kind of nice brown coating and it's absolutely delicious i mean something i've made in my kitchen for 25 years but it's great to take out of uh, your arsenal you make the mixture in advance you know, that you have the dry mixture, your guests come, you get a beautiful piece of salmon, which is how you really must start anything to have it be fabulous, and you sprinkle it all over and grill it up. Uh, it doesn't take 10 minutes, and your guests are wowed, and it, 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 it's easy. Now, um, you, you say another thing I agree with you on is that cloth napkins make food taste better. Absolutely. Absolutely and unequivocally. It's true. Um, yeah. And I, I, I actually have a picture in the in the book. I mean, the thing is, I've got beautiful pictures to sort of illustrate this, but there's a whole drawer of the cloth napkins, and that doesn't mean it needs to be expensive. It can be the second-hand store. It can be a rummage sale. It can be vintage. But uh, if you eat with cloth napkins, it, it, it's, a, it's a much different experience. So uh, I recommend it highly. Yeah, and I I like your idea of the um, not mixing up the salad, but having letting people pick what they want out of it too. Totally. Now we used to totally. do the antipasto dish, a huge silver platter that I sort of inherited, and and we put everything on it, and, and people could take what they wanted. Yes, I call it platters as a lifestyle, as as a sort of joke, but. Um, you know, it's like what you're going to do my, you know, my mango cop salad. I mean, it's just like, you know, if you've got the mango and if you've got the bacon and you've got the greens and you've got the chicken and you've got the cucumbers and a beautiful dressing, people can come and they can take what they want. So if it's like, oh, somebody doesn't eat bacon, they can do this. And somebody else just wants the greens and there's somebody who's not eating fruit. Um, and it is a, it's a wonderful way to present it. Your guests absolutely love it. 
and they feel really celebrated. But the truth is, you can make it for a weeknight dinner, and uh, more and more of people that follow along on the page are doing are, are doing that exact thing. So uh, we've had to create an entire pottery line just to help people oh, yeah. get there. You have a lot of um, special dressings and marinades and so forth, uh, but you say it's still quick cooking. Quick. I mean, I know you don't mean quick, quick, fast, but because uh, you you say you're not a fan of the instant pot, I've I've never even tried one of those. Here's the thing about us old-fashioned cooks: we haven't, and it, I'm not criticizing anybody that likes to do it and may find that great. I'm in my kitchen all day, so slow cooking and the magic of a pork shoulder in the oven with a few spices, cooked on low for eight hours, is it's a joyful process for me. And it doesn't mean that it's, it's a lot to make happen because it's, it's actually simple, you know, but there's a little finesse in doing all of that. You seem to have, have worked out your own life very well. I mean, you, you, you have a partner named Roy who you say is a good yeah. cook. And you, you tend to, I think from reading, um, you, you had a very happy childhood. Yes, absolutely. Uh, amazing parents who, who were, you know, really bestow a lot of love on us. So what what would you want people to, the one thing you want to leave people with the idea about this book? It, the book is a lot about magic, and it's the magic of love and cooking with love um, and what happens when you cook with love, how it absolutely transforms your life. So my thing is, like, uh, in order to succeed in the kitchen, there's a lot of failing first. Don't be afraid to get in there. Don't be afraid to try. Be a person that, you know, lets yourself make mistakes. Try cooking new things. Get a cookbook and write in the cookbook. Um, it's okay to spill. You know, I would just say get in there and tackle life. We've only got one of them, and let's make the most of it. <laughs> and, and the book that should be on top of your shopping list is called? No Crumbs Left. No Crumbs yeah. Left. <laughs> yeah, but, but yes, the Instagram and the blog is one word, and the book is three, No Crumbs Left. So okay. recipes for everyday food made marvelous. Terry Turner, thank you so much for talking to us about it and for heading on to the basics of what we should be eating and enjoying. And, and please give our please give our best regards to Roy. Absolutely, <laughs> I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, Terry. Thank you very much. And now, sweetheart, what do we have to close out today's program? Well, it's a slightly different um, slightly tack different. we're taking. Oh, right, but, right, right, but you yeah. know, um, it, how would you like to be described as a creator and a thinker? I mean, that's really brilliant, I think. And that's how people describe Harry Rosenblum, who, I mean, he seems to have co-founded or founded just about everything from the Brooklyn Kitchen to the Meat Hook um, Butchery, uh, to uh, sponsoring uh, the, the Good Food Awards. And he's, he's involved with just about everything and has a wonderful podcast uh, called Feast Your Ears. Anyhow, um, he's also an, an absolute authority on uh, slow fermentation, which is why he's talking to us about these wonderful vinegars called Omed uh, that are distributed by Philosophy Foods. Listen to Harry. Uh, one of the great wonders of the world happens to be Philosophy Foods, and they sent samples of something called Omed Slow Fermentation Vinegars. 
and more. And we ended up in touch with Harry Rosenblum, who is the founder of the Brooklyn Kitchen and absolutely an expert on slow fermentation vinegars, as it happens. <laughs> How about that, Harry, <laughs> for an interview? <laughs> Let's talk, first of all, what are we talking about? What is a slow fermentation vinegar? And also put it in the context of Spanish production and OMED. Sure. Um, so thanks, Anne, for having me on on the menu. Slow fermented vinegar, historically all vinegar was slow fermented. So in Orleans and France and in Asia, the way that vinegar was made was you took an alcohol, like say a wine, which would be, you know, which a lot of the vinegars in front of you, the omeds are made from wine. Is this Orleans method, as you're telling me, that what we're talking about is Orleans method? Um, no, so uh, they don't use the Orleans method, but historically, to give it context, the Orleans method was that you took your wine or your alcohol base, you inoculate it with the acetobacter, the bacteria that converts the alcohol into acetic acid to create vinegar, and you leave it alone, and you just let it sit there. Mm-hmm. That takes anywhere from six weeks to six months, depending on where you are in the world, depending on what you're starting with, depending on the strength of your, your bacterial strength. So for production purposes, as the world got faster and things moved faster, that's a little slow to have to sit on this product for such a long time. People started to uh, create different methods, and all the way up until now, now, in the modern age, most vinegars are created in a matter of days. You have a giant stainless steel uh, tank with a uh, basically a, you have a, a thing in the bottom that's swirling it around. They're pumping in pure oxygen because the bacteria need oxygen, and you can make thousands of gallons of vinegar in 36 to 48 hours. And it's not as good. And, it, and it's not as good, exactly. What you, what you sacrifice is you sacrifice flavor. Um, but you end up with a much faster-to-market product. OMED is using a process called the Schutzenbach method, and it was developed in Germany in the middle of the 19th century, sort of as industrialization was starting to happen. And it was right at the same time that we started to have things like microscopes and start to understand a little bit more about microbes and about bacteria, and and, and science was really exploding. And so it became clear that oxygen was a key ingredient here. Uh, In the past, it was kind of like, oh, you leave it alone, this thing happens. Nobody knew the oxygen was part of it because you had no vessels that could keep oxygen out, right? Everything was being done in oak barrels. The wood itself is oxygen permeable, so you couldn't keep the oxygen away from the the liquid completely, like you can now with things like glass and plastic. So what they figured out, the Schutzenbach method, basically is a way to make more oxygen available to the bacteria. And what they did is they built these giant columns that looked like barrels. They were maybe 15, 20 feet high, maybe 8 or 10 feet across, and they stuffed it full of wood shavings. And what they did is they poured the wine that they were trying to convert into vinegar with bacteria in it over the wood shavings, and it would trickle down. There were holes drilled in the sides of these columns to allow airflow, and then it would collect in the bottom, and somebody would have to fill a bucket and climb a ladder and pour it back in the top. (laughs) But what they discovered is that you could make great vinegar this way instead of waiting three months you could do it in two or three weeks. And it maintained a very similar flavor, in fact, and 
because you were basically able to do it and then you were in a production environment where you were then testing it, tasting it, and then bottling it, you had a much more consistent product. When you leave your vinegar in a barrel in the old Orleans method, over time you lose product to evaporation. You can potentially have other microbes, molds, and things that can grow and give you off flavors. Um, so Schutzenbach was really the first industrialized process that sped up what was a much older process, but now we look at it and it's really, it is a slow process that sort of hit the perfect middle ground that allows for production of very high quality vinegar in a controlled environment, but isn't sped up so fast that you're losing the flavor of those original grapes. Is that somebody's name, Schutten, whatever? The Schuttenbach is the name of the person who did the That's right. This is, this is the guy. It was, wasn't a guy, it was a guy, I guess. And, and what is it? Yep. Is it important what kind of wood is used? You know, historically, I think they used whatever they had around. Probably oak that they had been. You know, they had lots of oak shavings from shaving staves for barrels and things like that. Um, I've heard of it being done with um, cedar shavings um, in the Omed process. They're actually not using wood because it is a more modern process. What they have are these, uh, I don't know how to describe them, they look kind of like giant jacks, you know, the game you play with a ball yeah, and sure. little pieces of metal. Basically, they're like that, um, and they fill up the column on the inside, and of course, no one has to climb a ladder anymore either with a bucket. <laughs> they have a pump, so they're cycling the vinegar from the bottom up and pouring it over the top of these things, but, you know, same idea is that what you're doing is you are giving the bacteria an incredible access to oxygen molecules which allows the bacteria then to convert that liquid into vinegar much faster. Wow. Okay. So do these actually are, the OMED is made actually in Catalonia, right? Uh, yes. It's made in uh, Laredo is the name of the, of the town, north of Barcelona. Yeah, I just found the, this name written out, Schultenbach. Okay. Um you know, there's somebody we interviewed who still does something in the United States using the Orleon method. Somebody in the Southwest or California. Um, I know that Albert Katz, who makes wonderful vinegars in Napa, is using uh, the Orleans method. Um, and his vinegars are, are absolutely spectacular. Um, you what? know, but it can take him six months, eight months, a year uh, to get a finished product, which, of course, means that the, the vagaries of production, while his product is incredible, yes. uh, that also comes with a higher price tag. How much would it cost? Um, you know, his vinegars, I would have to double check, um, but I think, you know, some of them are pushing into probably $20, $30 for 500 milliliters. Wow. And and not that they're not worth it. I mean, don't get me wrong, Albert. I know Albert. He's, he's what are they called? Who is it? Albert who? Albert Katz, K-A-T-Z. Hey. Yeah, well, that's not who I, we interviewed. Latour Gel is oils, right? What's the uh, I, Latour, Yes, Latour Gel makes oils, for sure. What about the uh, Austrian um, thing that somebody imports? Well, there, there is an Austrian company that makes... What about the guy who's that made daughter? Cu- made cucumber vinegar. There's Gegenbauer. Gegenbauer, that's it. That's, who well, is that? That's the, Aust- that's the Austrian one. Yep. Yeah. There was one called... Ra- it wasn't Round Pond, but it was something pond. Round Pond? Round Hill, Round Hill Pond? Maybe. Yeah, okay. But that's here. There's someone that's in California. Yes, in California. Yeah. Do you that know was, about that? That was good stuff, too. They're excellent. Did you? Uh, and the, the same kind here. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so 
this is what we're talking about with the OMED things. They say that the grapes come from uh, local vineyards, right? Yep. And, uh, of course, the, the thing that's interesting is that they have different um, different wines. I mean, you have the Chardonnay, which is aged 12 months in French oak barrels, right? Yep. And you have Cabernet, the same thing, uh, cider, and is that aged as well? I don't know. Um, I don't believe the cider is aged. I think that it's made more like a, you know, like a, a, a Spanish cider, um, you okay. know, where it's fresher um, and, you know, probably a little bit, you know, that, that cider, I imagine I haven't tasted the original products because they really are not, they're not making vinegar as a side project of being a vineyard. They're focused on making vinegar from really great product that they start from. Really? Um, so I, I think sometimes you find that wineries will make vinegar out of wine that maybe isn't hitting all of the uh, all of the flavor profile that they're looking for in in their vintages. Um, whereas Omed is really making wine because of what it's going to taste like when it ends up as vinegar. I mean, some of the, like this Cava one, uh, it says it's made of the classic trio of grape varieties for Cava, Masabeo. Zanea and Perry, what's the last one? Perrieta. Anyhow, there, and then there's Rosé and Muscatel. Yep, the Muscatel one I love. It's excellent. Okay, and, and what else should we know about them? Well, I think one of the things that I, that I really like about them is that um, across the entire line, they represent a really great cross-section of vinegars that display the flavor of the original product. So, you know, there's been lots of talk in recent years about apple cider vinegar, and everybody is super into, you know, I take a shot of it in the morning, or I, you know, use it in, in all this stuff because it has all these, you know, important, people theoretically important uh, uh, probiotic qualities, which are valuable and certainly good, but to be honest, I think that there's a whole other world, and especially when you start thinking about vinegar as an ingredient that you're going to use in your cooking, just having apple cider vinegar in your pantry is very limited. Yep. So well, of course, now it's to, big on the cocktail um, circuit. Yes. Vinegar is. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you start to really be thinking about flavor, I mean, things like cocktails uh, or in what you're going to use for cooking, the opportunity to choose from a cider or something that's a Chardonnay or something that's going to be much stronger, like a Cabernet Sauvignon vinegar, uh, is, you know, is really great. And the fact that people now have access to that, because it is not that common uh, to see a single producer making all of these different varieties of vinegar and making them all available. Right. And they have a, a Pedro Jimenez, too. Yes. I can see that as a drinking a shrub kind of thing, right? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, that one that one is coming from a, you know, coming from a sherry, um, and then there's a sherry vinegar, you know. In in my book, Vinegar Revival, you know, I, I talk about encouraging people to try making just about every kind of vinegar at home, except for sherry vinegar and balsamic. I don't think people should make those. Oh, well, balsamic would take you forever, right? Well, exactly. I mean, unless you're going to live forever and have very deep pockets, I think you might as well. Or if your grandmother your started in her yeah. attic. <laughs> so, okay, so your book that you're going to be sending us is really about how we can make it ourselves at home? So the first third of the book is about vinegar as a, you know, vinegar as a product and how to make it at home, um, either... 
starting from making your own beer, cider, wine, that kind of thing, or just buying one that you like to drink. And then the rest of the book, about two-thirds of it, is more than 50 recipes for things you would think about for vinegar, like salad dressings and pickles, and then things maybe some people, you know, probably listeners of your show have already been using vinegar for, like cocktails, desserts. Um, you know, a lot of main dishes and side dishes that use vinegar. Important, in important things. Ways. Important things like descaling the coffee maker. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you'd use these for descaling the coffee maker. Yeah, I, I would not recommend using the muscatel vinegar for that. Although your coffee would probably taste pretty good. Now the, there is there is there is this funny old-fashioned drink that's made with cider. That the, the, the Pilgrim Fathers are, used to drink when they were going out into the fields. What's it called? Yep. I don't know. What's it called? Uh, so that's, you're, I think you're talking about, uh, you're talking about Switchel. Switchel, yeah. Switchel, I yep. forgot about and that. Switch, yeah. Switchel's really cool. Oh, Switchel, Switchel's great, and we're just getting into the, the season when Switchel is really great to keep around because you can batch it and keep it in your refrigerator, and it is really so refreshing. There's a, I mentioned in my book, but I came across Switchel uh, it was, you know, right around the time I was working on writing the book, I was also reading the Little House on the Prairie books to my daughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in that book, they talk about Ma makes this drink with vinegar and honey and in it mm. because they're working out in the fields, and if they just drank plain water, it would upset their stomachs. <laughs> right. Now, we got, we got some from, from somewhere... And they they sent us Switzerland, but they all, they also sent us a concent a concentrate. Mm. So right. so so you could pour some of that in your glass and then and then impregnate it with sparkling water, and that was really that's really ref- amazingly refreshing. Absolutely. Well, Harry, we're going to get your book and talk to you more about this uh, vinegar issue here. Uh, is there anything else we should say about Omed? Um, I think. That, uh, you know, one of the things that I really, that I really love about their vinegars is that they're not so precious. It's not like buying a bottle of balsamic that, you know, is going to cost you, you yeah, know, know. over $100 and you're going to want to, I mean, it's worth it and it's delicious, but you're going to want to use it drop by drop. But the that's the nice comes with an eyedropper. I mean, I have, I yeah. have a bottle that we bought probably 10 years ago for over 100, 125 or something. Sure, sure. A small uh, bottle. But, <laughs> but the Omeds are not, you know, they're not, they're not so precious that you can't use them in something and you can't cook with them or use them in a, in a dressing in a way that you would think about using, you know, any, any old vinegar, I guess, is what I would say about them. Um, and, you know, for any chefs that are listening, they're also available in food service size. Oh, that's a good thing to know. Yeah, yeah. Because these are I, we just got sample kits, so I didn't know. Well, Harry, you know a lot about vinegar, I must say, and I thank you for t- taking the time and trouble to explain it to us. Absolutely, anytime. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back in touch, and we'll be talking about your book next. Great. Well, I will have a copy of it sent over to you. Thanks, Harry. Again, Thanks. Um, we're talking Omed. Um, long or slow fermentation vinegars. Thanks, Harry Rosenblum. Take care, Anne. Thank you. Okay, sweetheart, it's not, it's not too late for me to inject something into the program because I'm going to say happy birthday. 
from a couple of days ago, and, and the, the answer to the question is not to be revealed. <laughs> but but if, might, I might reveal it if you promise to join us again, same time, same place next week, and until then... Bye-bye.